Amen. Well, what a joy to be here with you. Uh, thank you to the pastors here at New Life and this conference for hosting me. Um, you know, I thought it might be good for me to share for a couple minutes uh, a little bit about my story so that you're not listening to an absolute stranger for some of you that might not know who I am. You know, as Pastor Brady said, I pastor a church in Seattle. And all right, why didn't we run the ball? Uh, anyways, um, so... So I pastor a church in Seattle, and um, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and immigrated to this country when I was six years old. It's a pretty amazing story. My parents were both born in what is now called North Korea. Back when they were children, uh, there was only one country, and then a war broke out, and it separated uh, literally thousands of family, millions of people. My great-grandfather was one of the first uh, people to follow and believe in Jesus. And as a result, his household came to faith. And so I want you to know that as I stand here right now, I'm standing because of those that have come before me, who prayed, who had faith. I'm standing here right now because I don't know who they were, but some crazy white Protestant missionaries got on a boat in response to God's calling, and I mean this sincerely, not to be comical or anything, but out of response to God's calling, they got into a boat, and this was when they would create coffins before they left their respective countries. And they went to this peninsula to preach the gospel, to live out the gospel. So I'm just amazed and humbled by God's provision and grace that even goes before us. Now, I'm turning 45, so I'm going through my midlife, uh, midlife reflection right now. Uh, midlife reflection sounds so much more spiritual than midlife crisis. And my wife and I, we've been married about 20 years, and my wife happens to be a marriage therapist. Pause for dramatic effect. It means that she wins every argument in our home. Like, she knows all the tricks of the trade. And, and I'm not even kidding. Like, if you're a counselor or a therapist, there's a, a book. It's like a, a fairly large blue book, and it's called DSM or DVM. It's a diagnosis book for therapists and counselors. And so when my wife and I get into a discussion, it's amazing. Like a ninja, she'll grab this book without me even knowing it. She'll grab her diagnosis book, and then she'll open it up, and she'll go, Eugene, hold on for a second. Mm. Wait a minute, um, let me see here, um, you uh, are wrong. <laughs> and she wins again, it's amazing. Now, if you understand a little bit about my wife and I, and uh, we're just so uh, grateful for God's grace, we have three, uh, three children. And if you know our children and their names, you'll have a good idea who we are and the worldview that we have. Like names are really important. Someone who loved you gave you a name and with that name came prayers and dreams and destiny and purpose. So our children, they have both biblical names with pop culture references. And it's because, and I mean this sincerely, we want our children to love the scriptures, to love the word that became flesh, and we want them to engage the culture as salt and light. Okay? So for example, our oldest daughter, we have two daughters and a son, my oldest is graduating and off to college in less than a year. Let's pray right now. Okay? 
my oldest daughter, her name is Jubilee. Jubilee comes from the Old Testament, from Leviticus, God's promise every 50 years to erase all debt, God's call for his people to go back to the land, and for some of you who are X-Men characters, any, okay, wrong conference, wrong conference, okay. So our second daughter, don't judge us, her name is Trinity, she's not yet seen the film Matrix, but Trinity speaks of God's triune identity. And then lastly, my son, I love his name. If I can just say that honestly, his name is Jedi, Jedi. Now, Jedi from Star Wars, any Star Wars fans? A couple of you. Jedi, his name comes from the Old Testament, from Solomon's Hebrew name, which is Jedidiah, the chosen one. The chosen beloved, it's a beautiful name. And if you know anything about George Lucas, you'll know that he was influenced by his Judeo-Christian background. Many of his themes come from the Bible. It comes from this good, bad, all that kind of stuff. And so I love calling uh, my son by his name Jedi. He's 12 years old, but even right now, once a week, we do our lightsaber matches every single week. It's the way that we bond, we do lightsaber, I chop off his arm, I reconcile, I'm your father. We do this every single week. And I'm not even kidding. Now, when I share this story with people, occasionally some young men uh, come up to me after the conference and they'll say, Pastor Eugene, Pastor Eugene, how did you convince your wife to name your son Jedi? Teach us, Oyota. <laughs> now, just really quickly, let me just share this with you. In any kind of friendship, relationship, marriage, anything, when you take away choice or free will away from someone, conflict arises. One of God's greatest gifts to us is free will. It's choice, the ability to choose. And so when we found out we were having a son, I went to my wife and I said, Minhee, I love you so much. And that's not the trick. Minhee, I love you so much. Can we name our son Jedi? And she said, no. <laughs> now, being a true Star Wars fan, I went, can we name our son Jedi? And she said, she literally said, no. So names are important, and so we actually fought about our son's name. And so around the eighth month of her pregnancy, I finally went to my wife and I said, Minhee, I am so sorry. It's only fair, only right, only just. You're the mother of this child. You should choose our son's name. And she was just so happy about this. And so I said, here's your choice. <laughs> it's Jedi or Frodo. One of these two you choose. And I'm so glad that she chose Jedi because... Frodo Cho sounds, there's no destiny to Frodo Cho. One of the reasons why I'm so excited to be here with you is because the theme, City on a Hill, this applies to both us as individuals, 
as families, as small groups, as churches. It applies to all of us. Now, I want you to realize the Bible is clear. In a short bit, I want to read a scripture passage that I pray will inform the next 45 minutes for us as we navigate through scriptures, learning nuggets of wisdom, biblical wisdom, to help us in this. But know this right now. God has never called us to be a light to the light. And it's not that God doesn't enjoy us gathering together to worship God because this is our eternal activity. We are going to worship the one true God for all eternity. But while we are here on this earth, know this, we are on mission. And as people on mission, as we gather together for our conferences and for our church services and for our small groups and our potlucks, it is beautiful, it's important for us to gather, to worship, to encourage, to pray, but know that once you exit these doors, if your worship ends, then what we're doing right here is all a show. It's just a sham. And if it's just a show, then what we're obsessed with is how do we entertain you? And I want you to know this conference does not exist to entertain you, but to equip you and to encourage you so that as you exit those doors and you go into your respective families and marriages and friendships and neighborhoods and schools and workplaces, we need you there. Do you know why? Because that's where God has placed you. So with that in mind, join me in a word of prayer as we enter into the scriptures. God, thank you again. God, we desire to be led by you, O Holy Spirit. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn it on right now. Uh, it's in the Gospel of Luke. What happened to old school Bibles? Come on. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, we're going to read verses 17 to 20. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, listen for the Word of God. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with them, was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now let's try to break down the scriptures a little bit so that you have some context to what we're reading. There's two physical places in our passage. If I could use the stage uh, as a prop, if you will, on this side of town, you have Jesus, the disciples, you have teachers of the law 
who've gathered from all over the region. What's interesting about this passage is that it's still fairly early on in Jesus' public ministry. If you read earlier in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, you'll know that Jesus only recently called and invited and gathered his disciples. Yes, we see a miracle take place, but even by the fifth chapter, by the time that Jesus gathers in this home, there's been a buzz spreading about Jesus. And so when this buzz, with that technology, with that email, with that social media, it spreads around the region. Now we can assume, even though it might not be recorded in scripture, Jesus must have been doing some teaching. There must have been some miracles. And as a result, people are asking the question, who is this Jesus? Now when teachers of the law gather in the space, what you need to know is that they eventually, but even right now, they become the nemesis, the antithesis of Jesus. They're religious leaders, people who are scholars of the word, scholars of the law. They're people that were looked upon on the most part with respect by the people around them. But when Jesus, the son of God, shows up in the flesh, not only do they not recognize Jesus, they are combative against Jesus. Now, why is this important? Well, on the other side of town, we're introduced to a paralyzed man. The scriptures do not go into a story, narrative, his name, and a group of men that we believe were friends on mission together. Now, we'll get to this side of town, but I want to focus just for a couple minutes on this side of town. Why? Because if we're honest, it's possible that we as Christians... We as church leaders, that we might resonate more with this house than what's going on on this side of town. And what I mean by this is that by being church leaders and by being Pharisees and by being Sadducees, you and I are religious leaders. And one of the most dangerous things that we find about this passage here is that religious leaders gather and they are not teachable. Now, this is a word for me. It's a word for us. I have my fancy degrees. I've gone to the conferences. I've written a book. I have this or that. If in your posture of leadership, you find yourself and only you, when you look in the mirror and you realize that as you're introspective and you examine yourself and you realize there is a hardening of hearts, there's a lack of teachability, you are in one of the most dangerous places as a leader. There has to be a tender, teachable spirit. I often tell people that sometimes the most difficult people to lead to Christ are Christians. And what I mean by this is that discipleship is not a destination, but it's an ongoing journey. We're constantly learning, and it has to be leaders who model this, by, model this for our congregation by our posture of humility and teachability. I want you to know, sisters and brothers, 
that sometimes we ask God, will you move this particular mountain in our church, in my leadership, in my organization, in my family? But I want you to realize that it's possible that you might be that mountain God wants to move. You and I. As leaders, we're particularly susceptible to this quiet spirit of arrogance that seduces our hearts and minds. And this is why in your discipleship, in our relationship with God, man, we need that kind of honesty with the Lord. And we need the honesty with the Holy Spirit as well. In other words, what I'm telling you is don't just be peddlers of the gospel. Don't just become salespeople of the gospel. The gospel must be something that we preach to ourselves on a daily basis. May you understand every single day that we desperately need the gospel. Because if you don't, I'm telling you right now, we're a fine line away from becoming Pharisees. And we become peddlers of the gospel. On this side of town, we're not quite sure all of the context, and so we have to use our imagination, if you will. And I believe with scripture, there are some things that are clear and there are some things that are open to our imagination. And so what we don't understand per the fifth chapter is how and why these four men were convicted to do something. Now the truth is God is always speaking. The question for me is are we listening and do we have the courage to obey? I want you to realize God is at work, whether or not you are part of his mission or not. God is moving all around the world. And I say this respectfully. I want you to know that before you started your church, before you planted your ministry, before you arrived in your particular town, God's been at work long before you arrived on the scene. And the reason why I say this then is that as leaders, we need a spiritual sensitivity to ask the question, not so much, God, how can you be a part of what I'm doing? Because that's the narcissistic Western mindset where everything revolves around me. I don't want to burst your bubble, but at some point you're going to die. You're going to physically die. But the kingdom of God continues to reign forever. And so as leaders, what we need is this discernment. God, how are you already at work and how can I be a part of what you're doing? So that we're kingdom-minded in all that we do. But somehow we know that these four friends somehow heard the gospel, heard the words of Jesus, and it compelled them to take action. Now, my imagination says that this is probably not the first time they've seen this paralyzed man. My imagination says they probably have walked by this person maybe tens, maybe hundreds of times. 
Because we're creatures of habit, it wouldn't surprise me. And when we're speaking about this town, we're not speaking about Colorado Springs or Seattle or New York or wherever we are. We're talking about a smaller town where people had an idea and they were always in other people's businesses. But here's the first thing I want you to know. I'm going to navigate you to about six or seven principles here. The first thing is that I'm inspired by their action. Now, why do I say action? Because in our world today, especially in our world today, it is so tempting, so seductive to look spiritual than to obey the path and the steps of Jesus. In our world of, for example, in our world of ego and narcissism and social media, we want to appear good and godly and holy and spiritual. And I want you to realize it is a vast difference to be in love with the idea of following Jesus than to actually follow Jesus. It's a huge difference. Think about social media for a second. And I know we, many of us use social media. I did my first Periscope interview with Pastor Brady about an hour ago today. But think about social media. Think about Instagram. The whole purpose of social media is to tell about our stories, if you will. But it's tempting because we want to paint a particular lens of our lives. And so we filter it. We angle our lives in such a way to appear good. Like, think about Instagram. When was the last time you posted a picture of your life when it was just an absolute mess? Think about a hashtag, this is what I look like in the morning. Like, when was the last time you woke up and you went, ah, because we don't. We take pictures and we tell people, look at my life, look at my new shoes, look at my new dress, look at my new muscles, look at my no matter whatever it might be. I have friends that are foodies and they take pictures of every single delicious meal that they have in numerous different angles and I hate them because I just say, eat your food. (laughs) But it's this obsession of wanting to look good. So if we're not careful, in our world today, I guarantee you, many of us are more tempted by the idea of certain things. If I were to ask a question right now and I said, how many of us here love generosity, compassion, being light, justice? As Christians, why would we not raise our hands? It's biblical. It's part of the lens by which we see ourselves as followers of Jesus. But maybe the question we should ask is, are we more in love with the idea of these things? Or maybe we all love justice, we all love mercy, we all love compassion until there's a personal cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. You cannot domesticate it. You cannot somehow filter it. You cannot somehow placate it. There is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to saying, I choose to be light and salt. I choose to be a city on a hill. I choose to carry the cross. There's a cost. 
Some of you, I think I might be losing, so let me give you a metaphor here. Let me give you an example. I love exercise, as you can tell. Okay? And let me be more honest here. I love the idea of exercise. Are you feeling me right here? Like, I'm just going to be bluntly honest here. I had a gym membership for over 10 years. I was part of a gym in our small neighborhood town called, I can't remember, but basically they got acquired by 24-7 fitness. And by government acquisition laws, they had to grandfather my rates at $9.95 for the lifetime. So for 10 years, I had a gym membership. And in those 10 years, I went to the gym once. Don't judge me. Judger. I mean, I subscribe to health magazines. They're on my tablet somewhere. I have a treadmill in the basement of our home. It looks so nice. In John chapter 4, verse 4, there's a profound, almost puzzling Bible verse that says, Jesus had to walk through Samaria. Now, theologically, I don't think Jesus had to do anything. He chooses everything that he does. His words, his steps, every action gives us a glimpse of his heart and a glimpse of the kingdom of God. The reason why it's puzzling is that back during the time of Jesus, hardly anyone walked through Samaria. You can go back all the way to 1 Kings chapter 17 to explain why this tension that is now complicated by centuries and centuries of animosity and stereotypes and whatever it might be, it begins to escalate by the time that Jesus arrives, Jews and Samaritans did not intermingle at all. Jews looked at Samaritans as half-breeds, as dirty and, and unworthy of God's covenant and God's grace. So much that if you were in the southern region of the maps in your Bibles and you had to go up north, the problem is this microphone represents Samaria. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. The quickest destination from step A to step B is a straight line. I can do this in eight steps. But what they did during the time of Jesus is that everyone traveled east in order to avoid Samaria. They crossed a particular river for extra protection and they took the most circuitous route that would take about four times longer to get to their destinations. That's the reason why the Bible says Jesus had to walk through Samaria. Because even in his walking, he wanted to invite us to be city on a hill. He wanted to invite us to be agents of peace and hope and reconciliation. And when I look at this story, you and I, we can talk about Samaria. 
We can theologize about Samaria. We can liturgize about Samaria. We can write poetry about Samaria. We can do spoken word about Samaria. We can do social media about Samaria. We can write blogs about Samaria. But if you're not walking through Samaria, you're just in love with the idea of Samaria. That's why. There's a particular, even in the simple way, they're choosing to take action. It's profoundly beautiful. Now, I'm not suggesting that like chickens with our heads off, we're constantly acting and moving. But if you believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and gives you a word and it's confirmed by others and others are coming alongside with prayers and encouragement, don't just let that conviction rest and dwell and wither and die. Here's the second thing. They choose to take action, but it's not just any action. Somehow, in their finite knowledge of Jesus. Now listen, they're not experts. They don't have PhDs. They're not the doctors of ministry or masters of divinity. They haven't gone to Bible college or seminary. They haven't gone to the New Life Conference. But these men, they had the simple conviction that not only were they going to take action, but they had faith in Jesus. And by faith in Jesus, it means that the gospel still matters in our world today. In a post-Christian in a post-Christendom world, do not be dismayed by critics or cynics. The gospel changes everything. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to mention Jesus in every conversation, in every statement that you make, in everything that you do. But may the gospel be that which informs, conforms, transforms everything that you do. Because if it's not, man, it is so prone to wander. It's so prone to our idolatrous ways. And so these men, in their limited knowledge, in their human finitude, they were somehow able to grasp the infinite message and the incarnation of Jesus, and they realized that he was the real deal, legit, the son of God. He was the Messiah, the Messiah, and so they were moved by compassion, but they said, we need to somehow bring this person to Jesus. Now, I can say a lot here, but I can just reference you to last night's sermon with Christine. People matter. And because they matter, and because we believe Jesus is not just pop psychology, he's not just some good moral teaching, he's not just behavioral modification, we're talking about the very one who created all that is good and beautiful in the cosmos. This God... When we speak about loneliness and disconnectedness, we're speaking about Jesus being the only one that can meet our deepest longings and needs. So friends, do not be discouraged. Keep teaching Jesus, preaching Jesus, 
embodying Jesus, living out Jesus, and bring people to Jesus, trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work. The third thing I want to share with you about these men is that they had compassion. They had a sense of kindness. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that compassion equates salvation. But what I am saying about compassion and mercy and justice, these things reflect the heart and character of God. And while they in themselves don't earn our salvation, they're like windows to our God's heart. They're windows to the character of God. Sometimes when people uh, ask me, they'll say, you know, I heard, Pastor Eugene, that uh, you're a a justice-minded pastor. And I kind of cringe because I'm not a justice-minded pastor. I'm a gospel-centered pastor. And if you're a gospel-centered person, then you'll care about compassion. You'll care about mercy. You'll care about justice. Let me give you an example. If there was a box on this table right now, if there was a box on this table, and I know we're not supposed to put God in a box, but if this box embodied the character of God, and if I said, you know what, we're going to extract love out of God's character, man, you should be absolutely furious. You should say, the pastors at this church, what are they doing? This guy's a heretic. Because how can you speak of God without love? What if we were to remove grace out of God's character? You can't speak of God without God's grace. That's the only reason why all of us are here. If we were to remove holiness or holy aspects out of God's character, then you don't know God. The psalmist in his human finitude trying to grasp this infinite concept of God's holiness, the only thing the psalmist can say or proclaim or sing is to just be on repeat. God, you are holy, holy, holy. So you cannot speak of God without understanding even for a glimpse his sense of holiness. So my question to you is this. Why? When in the Old Testament there are over 200 biblical references about God and justice, have we somehow extracted justice out of God's character and called it an agenda? Don't let media pundits somehow hijack these words. Yes, it's complicated. We can understand that, but we must also understand that when we read the word of God, Isaiah 61, 8, I, the Lord, love justice. This is God's heart. So I'm moved by the fact that these four men, they realize a sense of brokenness about this situation. There was something unjust about this situation. But it wasn't just this whole concept of the idea. They were moved by compassion. Sometimes people ask me the question, now Pastor Eugene, how do you wrap your mind around so much brokenness in the world? 
In a couple months, I'll be heading off to Lebanon to do some work with some of our partners on the ground around the issue of the Syrian refugee slash migrant crisis. About a quarter million human beings have been killed as a result of what's transpired. It's impacted nearly 13 million people. In our world today, there's about 34 to 36 million people, including young girls, that are caught in different forms of forced labor and slavery. About 800 million people don't have access to clean water. One of the fastest growing epidemics in this country, the wealthiest country, is the rise of homelessness, especially homelessness with children. And so you might be asking, gosh, this seems overwhelming. It's leading to paralysis. How can I wrap my mind around so much brokenness in the world? Now, I don't have all the answers, but I'm telling you right now, it begins with your heart. You got to care. I'm just going to say it. If I get in trouble, I'm sorry. Give a damn. Care. Sometimes we as Christians, we think our call is to fix the entire world. You ain't the Messiah. Our calling is to be the hands and feet and words of Jesus. That's our calling. And so I love the fact that these four men, somehow they were convicted Somehow, by the gospel, somehow by Jesus, and they were moved by compassion. They cared. And sometimes we have to see messy things. And why is that important? Because so much of our life is moved around how to provide comfort and safety in our lives. Man, I pray that God, as he comforts you, encourages you, I also pray that God would break your heart for the things that break the heart of God. We need more broken-hearted disciples. When I was in college, a student in college seven years ago, thank you. When I was a college student some years ago, I uh, double majored. When I was in sixth grade, I uh, struggled mightily in the United States because of immigration. Was bullied, picked upon. And by the time I got into middle school, I was voted the shyest kid in our middle school. Developed a stuttering problem, struggled immensely. God's grace has been so amazing. But when I got into high school, I realized that I needed to confront some of my biggest fears, which was speaking in front of people. And so I did the scariest thing that I can think of, which was to audition for a theater play. And so I got cast for a play called Midsummer Night's Dream, and I was the best wall ever. (laughs) For some of you who read Midsummer Night's Dream... And so when I got to college, I double majored in psychology and theater. Now, be honest, I was not very good. So when I got to college, I was cast for only two plays. And in one of these plays, I was playing a homeless person. 
And the director, who was known for being very blunt, he was great, but very blunt, abrasive, he came up to me after rehearsals one day and says, Eugene, you're horrible. <laughs> Those were his words. And he says, Eugene, you're jumping on lines. It appears like you have no idea the narrative, the story of the person you're playing. And if you take your craft seriously, I challenge you to go out into the streets and live for a week as a homeless person. And so I took that challenge to heart. I allowed and kind of played into some bad stereotypes. I dressed a certain way, made myself a sign, got myself a blanket, and I made my way to San Francisco, which was home growing up, and there's a street in San Francisco called Market Street. And so I'm sitting on Market Street in front of a department store called Macy's, and it was miserable, so miserable, that the seven-night excursion lasted for four days and three nights. It was cold, it was miserable, but what I remember to this day that I want you to understand is that literally, because it's on the financial district, there were occasionally people who would, I don't know, throw change my way. But literally thousands of people walked past me. And what I remember to this day is that no one would look at me in the eyes. No one. And I've never felt so invisible and so insignificant. And I wonder if Mother Teresa was onto something when she said that the greatest disease in the world today is loneliness. How does that make sense? Because when you want to ignore someone, what do you do? You look the other way. Now, I don't have the time to look at every single person, but when I see someone, when I see this brother here, what I'm saying is, I see you, brother. I believe you're created in the image of God. The truth of the Imago Dei, that imprint is upon you and your soul. I believe God has a purpose and a destiny and a favor and a blessing for you. And it's profound when you can look at someone. When someone says, how do we change the world? How do we be city on a hill? I'm going to break it down very simply. You look at people in the eyes. You look at people in the eyes. And you might not be able to solve their situation. You may not be able to answer in the ways that they want you to or you may want to. But when you look at this person, you're giving them value and worth and dignity. And it's so powerful. Jesus does some amazing miracles. But what still to this day just fascinates my imagination is that Jesus stops and looks at people in the eyes. When people are like hoarding around Jesus, pressing against Jesus, hundreds of people, Jesus pauses, sees that Samaritan woman at the well. Remember that story of the woman suffering from internal bleeding? 
And she's like worming through the crowd. She's worming through the crowd in her mind. She's thinking, if only I can touch Jesus, I will be healed. And she touches Jesus. And then Jesus asks the most ridiculous question. He says, who touched me? Now, you know why that's ridiculous, right? Because you're Jesus. You know everything. But Jesus wanted to stop. And he wanted people, the disciples, the crowd, the religious leaders, he wanted them to know that the kingdom of God is such that Jesus stops and looks at that woman in the eyes and says, I see you. I see you. And you are a son, a daughter of the one most high. Action, faith, compassion. So they're moved by compassion and what do they do? They have to carry this mat. Now listen, my son is 12 years old. When I carry him on my back, because he had a recent knee injury from playing basketball, I mean, he's 12 years old, it takes a lot of work. So they're carrying this adult paralyzed man, the scriptures don't give it a name, and they're carrying this person together. What does this mean? Church, we need to learn the spirit of collaboration. We need the spirit of partnership. We need to confess at times our territorialism, our tribalism, our sense of it's about us against you. It's about what's better and cooler and hipper. I want you to realize, and I'm not trying to sound disrespectful, I believe wholeheartedly that there will come a time when your churches will have its final service. But the kingdom of God reigns forever. Now some of you might be wondering what does that mean? Listen, the greatest church planter in the history of the church is a guy named Apostle Paul. How many of his churches still exist? Zero. But the work of the kingdom, the fruitfulness of the kingdom endures forever. So while you and I engage in good leadership to do our respective churches, just know it is more than our branding, our logos and such. It's about the larger kingdom. And so we need to collaborate. And one of the ways that we collaborate is that we pray for other churches. We pray for other ministries. We celebrate what God's doing in other churches. We never revel in some of the mishaps of other churches. Why? Because we're one team, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We serve the one true God. Look around for a second. Can you look around? Look around, front of you, behind you. This is your team. This is the family as we're seeking to live out the gospel in our respective places. Eight years ago, we just moved into a church three Sundays ago. It's a, a move that has been on the news for a lot of complex reasons. But it's also uh, fascinating because there was no other space like this in this particular neighborhood. In the city, in the heart of the city, it's about 40,000 square feet. And it's about one mile away from our current church. 
Our church, our sanctuary, our previous sanctuary, it sat 150 people. Legally. Okay? <laughs> we sat a few more through some creative ways. And people have asked, how in the world did your church end up purchasing a property that was 40,000 square feet? Where did you get those resources? Well, I'm going to tell you a story. It's one of the best sermons I've ever heard. Eight years ago, after three years of praying, crying, discussing, some fighting, more discussing, more praying, there was a church of 65-year-old uh, Anglo-Caucasian church in Seattle made up of a bunch of Swedish people. The average age was about 60 to 70. There was about 65 people in this church. And we were renting from their church. It was their church and we were renting from them in the evening service. And they came to us and they said, we would like to die to ourselves and give this land and building to you because we believe the kingdom of God will flourish. They gave us $7 million. $7 million. And these congregants, there was a bunch of like old grandmothers. They were like this gang. They were this posse. And every Sunday, and I'm not even kidding, every Sunday they would find me out. There were like four or five grandmas that would walk together like this. Kind of maybe not like that, but they would walk <laughs> towards me. They would walk towards me. And every single Sunday, I don't know what it is about that generation, but they would always hold my hands with two hands. And they would squeeze my hand, and because I'm a prideful man, they had like supernatural strength, and they would hurt, and they would squeeze my hands, and they would say, uh, Pastor Eugene, they would look at me straight in the eyes, Pastor Eugene, we want you to know we pray for you and Minhi every single day. And I wasn't even their pastor. And every fiber of my body said, they're praying for me every single day. Because there's something about a kingdom vision that we all need. Why? Because you can't do it alone. I love this church. This church can't reach Colorado Springs alone. Are you ridiculous? You can't reach your cities alone. You can't reach your towns alone. You can't reach your neighborhoods alone. So we got to learn to collaborate a couple more points because I'm running out of time. Here's the fourth thing. Listen what happens. Action, compassion, faith, collaboration. <laughs> They're moving. And what happens? It's hard work. It's hard work. News break or breaking news. The work of God is hard work. Ministry is hard work. Being a pastor is hard work. Mary's place is hard work. It's not easy. And so we have to be careful by the stories that we tell that we're not glamorizing or romanticizing stories. It's hard work, which is the reason why we need a spirit of perseverance in our lives. When I talk about our generation, if I can just be very general here. If we're part of this generation right now, when I look at young people, we have a lot of young people at our church. 
And they're so creative. It's amazing. I'll share something with them. They go home, they create an app, and they show it to me. It's amazing. So creative. But where we excel in our creativity, in our ideas, in our innovation, I worry because we don't have that spirit of tenacity. Where we believe, if God says in Luke chapter 8, let's get to the other side of the lake. The Bible does not say, let's go to the other side on a straight line, on a cruise line, in a yacht. He says, let's get to the other side. A storm ensues. But listen, if Jesus says he'll get you to the other side, he will get you to the other side. So we have to persevere. We have to be tenacious. 15 years ago, when my wife and I set out to plant this church, we had ideas, we loved the city of Seattle, but nothing turned out the way that it did. It's a long story. Nothing turned out the way that it did. And so after a while, no income, no job, learned that I realized that a, a master's of divinity degree is useless to society and nobody will hire you. And for eight months, I was unemployed. Bills to pay. We were on food stamps for about a year. It's not what I imagined at the age of 31, planting a church. But eventually, I got a job as a custodian at a Barnes & Noble store. A huge retail bookstore. My mother comes up, flies up from San Francisco to spend some time with me, and I'm about to go to work at 6 o'clock in the morning. So I clean the store for three hours before it opens up. And she had just arrived the night before, and I was walking downstairs from our bedroom to get ready, and she's at the dining table praying. Because my mother is one of those Korean moms that get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to pray for an hour or two every single day. That's who she is. She reads scripture, she sings songs, bad clapping, but that's what she does. I said, Mom, it's like this. Come on, you can do it. And she looks at me and she goes, Ungjina, no odigani. Eugene, where are you going? And the thing is, because I'm a prideful guy, and it's not that working as a custodian was beneath me, it's just the farthest thing from my mind. And so I said to her, I go, oh, yeah, 어머니, 저 일가요. I'm going to work. And instantaneously, she says, hallelujah, we've been praying for your work. And she says, what are you doing? Yeah, 저 청소해요. I'm a custodian. My mother is at the dining table. She gets up, and I'm scared because <laughs> she's a disciplinarian. She gets up, and she walks towards me, and I'm not quite sure what she's going to do. So I, I take action. I, I'm in a position just in case to defend myself. And she's walking towards me. And if you come to Quest this Sunday, you'll always notice her because she's the mother the old grandma that walks like this has horrible hips and knees. So here she is walking towards me, and then she walks right past me. 
She walks right past me. She goes to the closet. She opens the closet. She gets her jacket. She puts on her jacket. And then she turns to me and she says, Eugenia, 같이 가자. 도와줄게. Let's go together. I will help you. That's the tenacious spirit that we need. That's the tenacious spirit that we need. Last thing that I'll share. They get to the house, and you know the story. It's full. It's packed. There's no other option. And at this point, if the story ends, it's still a good story. They would probably say, hey, paralyzed guy, uh, let's do a selfie together. Come on, come on. Uh, for good social media. Let's do it together. But there is the spirit of creativity. We need people in the church to realize we serve the God creator. This God who created the earth, the sky, the water, the cosmos, the galaxies, the stars. Our God is a creative God. And when there's problems and issues, we need a spirit of creativity. We need, every now and then, I believe in this story, one of the four friends says, hey guys, um, here it is. I have a crazy idea. Some ideas are crazy. Some crazy ideas are God-inspired. We need women and men, young and younger, dreaming, innovating, and tenacious spirit. The worship team can come up at this time as we close. I love that in this story, these four friends, I don't know what they were doing, but they had to let go of their agenda. They had to let go of what was in their hands, and they had to take up the mat and carry this paralyzed man. When we want to serve Jesus, when we want to live as individuals or churches as cities on a hill, I want you to realize that one of the costs is that we have to let go so that we allow God to work through us. I was reading an article in a magazine called National Geographic. You know what magazines are, you flip pages. And, and so I'm reading a magazine called National Geographic. And there's this article about the art of trapping monkeys in Africa. It's a fascinating article, kind of brutal. Some of it's for research, some of it's for other stuff. And what these hunters will do is that they'll go to the eastern part of Africa where there's a high density of monkeys in this particular region. And as they go there, they end up collecting as many coconuts as possible, hundreds of coconuts. And as they go towards this particular forest areas, they'll start drilling a small hole in the middle of this coconut. Now, they don't drill straight through. They drill about two-thirds and they'll excavate all the inside stuff. And then they pour sweet fermented rice in the middle of the coconut. 
They'll then take string and they'll wrap this particular coconut with string so that it's suspended in air because it's tied around trees. So the next thing you know, you got hundreds of coconuts suspended in air. They go away, the film cameras are rolling, and the next thing you know, monkeys descend from the trees, enticed by the smell of the sweet rice. They gather closer and closer and closer. They look around to make sure it's safe. They get closer and closer and closer. I don't know why I'm walking like this. They closer and closer and closer. And then when they get to the coconut, this is what they do. They shove their paw into the center of the coconut to grab as much sweet rice as possible. You see what just happened? They try to take out their hand, and it's stuck. They swear in monkey language. <laughs> and I'm like reading the story. I'm like emotionally invested. I'm like, monkey, let go of the sweet rice. My wife is like, man, you need counseling. You need counseling. <laughs> let go of the sweet rice. But here it is. The monkeys will not let go of the sweet rice because they place more value on the sweet rice than they do their own freedom. Sisters and brothers, if you're like me, there is, there are sweet rices in our lives. Oftentimes we say, God, I want to change the world but I wonder if it's possible that God is calling us to continually be changed. If we're asking God, I want to take more of your kingdom, is it possible that we need to let go? And I don't know what those sweet rices might be in your life. But as we close in prayer in a song, let's stand together on our feet right now. And as we close in prayer, would you take this to heart? that God loves you and that God invites you to let go of the sweet rice, to take hold of action, of faith, of compassion, of collaboration, of creativity, to take hold of Jesus. Would you, as we close in prayer, could you just open your hands as a posture right now in that simple gesture to say, God, I want to let go of the sweet rice so I could hold more of you. God, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We're here only because of your amazing grace. We're here only because you first loved us. God, by your spirit, your tender Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would you rebuke us? But would you move us more towards your son, Jesus? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you? somehow communicate to each and every single one of your child tonight that if there are sweet rices in our lives, would you let us know that you, he that is in us, is greater than that which is in the world. That you are greater than the sweet rices of our lives. And God, may we have the boldness to relinquish such things so that we can hold more of you, more faith, 
more collaboration. God, more creativity, more of you. This is our prayer. And all God's people said, amen.